0: went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: What I'd like to do this morning is, I want us to ask four questions of this story because I think it's a familiar story, but I think we actually lack a lot of the context for what's actually going on. So I want to ask four questions of the story of the Magi or the wise men from the East. And then I want us to draw some conclusions because we're going through an Advent series. We are trying to learn better how to wait on Jesus, how to wait on the Lord until he returns again. And I think there's some amazing stuff in here because of the four now stories that we've looked at, this is the one that Gentiles, like non-Jewish people, were looking for the Messiah. So we're going to ask these questions. Who were these wise men? What was this star that they saw in the east? How did they know what the star meant? And why were they interested in the king of the Jews? Which is what this symbol signified. Okay, so who were these wise men? And uh, apologies to John Henry Hopkins Jr. And apologies to you. If your favorite Christmas carol is We Three Kings, um, all those words are wrong because there's no evidence that there were three. There is no evidence that they were kings. And they did not come from the Orient. And other than that, it's a great song. Uh, there is a 5th or 6th century Greek chronicle that suggests the names of these three men were Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. That may have been their names. Again, there's no evidence. And it doesn't change the story for us either historically or what we're intended to learn from the story, if we don't know some of these details. So who are, are the wise men? Well, if you're reading this in the Greek, wise men is the translation of one Greek word, magi. Okay, that's where we get this idea of like magician. It's that magi that's found at the beginning of the word magician. And there's a long history in ancient Eastern cultures of who these magi were. They were a Persian priestly caste, So they were helping people offer sacrifices to their gods, primarily Ahura Mazda in like the Zoroastrian religion. But these were like astronomers and astrologers. So there was part science, but also kind of part magic and even black magic. Some of them like the like the ancient magicians of Egypt, for example, when they in the days of the Exodus could do some of the miracles and some of the plagues that Moses could do by the power of God. These two, some of the magi had power from the spirits to actually do things. So I want you to think of these magi as not, not kings, but they're a mix of priests and uh, court advisors to the king. They're searching the skies for signs of things that were happening or were going to happen. They're religious figures, they're scientific figures, they're philosophical figures, they're political figures, and all of that is kind of rolled into this cast of people called Magi. From the East was not a reference to like what we think of as like Asia today, but it was the Parthian Empire, the Parthian Empire basically stretched from the eastern edge of modern Turkey all the way to the western edge of modern India. So basically the region that today we think of like Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, or ancient Persia, or the Parthian Empire, this is where these men came from. Um, It's interesting, like just a a little tidbit. This is basically, like if you read the boundaries of the Garden of Eden where the very first man and woman were created, like the Euphrates and the Tigris right there, this is where these magi were from. Is that that basically same region as where the first culture ever took form. All right, that's who these wise men are. Now, what was this star that they saw in the east? And there's a lot of debate about this. I think we can settle that it was not a part of a normal constellation. It was not just a a regular star that followed a seasonal pattern of tracking across the sky. And we know that because not only were these men astronomers slash astrologers, but if you look at verse two, as they're telling someone else why they're coming to the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, they said, we saw his star when it rose. So they're saying, this is something out of the ordinary that we're associating with a special person. They've been watching the stars for generations. So they had, I mean, some of the ancient maps you can see of how they had mapped the sky. And by the way, they saw a lot more stars than we do because there wasn't light pollution. And they mapped the skies very accurately. And they knew there's something that just appeared that that has not been here before. It wasn't even here a decade before. It wasn't here 76 years ago like Halley's Comet. This is not a predictable eclipse of the sun or the moon. It's not an on-schedule meteor shower. They say it's a star. The word aster, so like our building, like one more thing that we hope that asterisk, that it is a place that points people to the Messiah. We want our building even and where we meet and how we come together to point people to Jesus. But that word aster in ancient cultures referred to stars, what you think of as stars, but it was really any heavenly body could be lumped together as an aster or asters. So you know how when you look up in the sky at night, you also see planets that are not giving off their own light, but they are reflecting the light of other heavenly bodies, and we see them as stars. They register to the naked eye as stars. So this could have been anything, and I believe it was probably supernatural, okay? Going on in the text, you see in verse 9 that it says, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So what you see is the star is moving purposely or purposefully, and it's also moving contrary to all the other constellations just shifting across the sky at night. It's, it's kind of staying there and going before them, and as they walk, it continues to go before them, and it Finally, get specific enough that they can literally enter a single house. And you know, if you're walking towards stars, not only are they moving as you're walking, as the course of the night wears on, but they're not—they're not, they're not going to lead you to anything specific. They may lead you eastward or westward, but they're not going to settle over a house. So this is a supernatural sign that they have been looking for, and it leads them to the specific house. Uh, by the way, the the Magi—if you have, uh, you know. It's not bad, but if you have a nativity scene with magi, you know, throw your magi out, because they weren't there. Okay. They they came to a house, not all, like no, you can keep your magi, but just set them to the side as a reminder that they they were in the house later that that (laughs) jesus began to grow up in in Bethlehem. All right. So how how did they know what this star meant? So if you back up fourteen hundred years approximately from this time period. You have the Exodus. So you have hundreds of thousands, if not a million Jews, Hebrews, Israelites, living in bondage in Egypt for generations. And God raises up Moses to go back and deliver the people. And they're crossing the Red Sea and they're going across the Sinai Peninsula. And I won't rehearse all this for you because most of you probably know of some of the rebellion that they should have just gone to the promised land where their forefathers came from, but they didn't. They're like, well, there are giants in the land. There's terrible, there's other people have settled it in the meantime, they'll crush us. And so what they do is they eventually cross the Jordan River and they're on the east side of the Jordan River and the promised land is just across the river. And they're, they're reaching out to these different kings and kingdoms like the Amorites and the Moabites and they're saying, hey, can we... Can we come through your land, through your kingdom? We'll stay on the king's highway. We mean you no harm. And, you know, the, the, the kings were like, well, no, you, you can't bring hundreds of thousands of people right through the middle of our territory. That's, that's not how this works. And so at some point in time, God basically wipes out the Amorites because the king of the Amorites was like, no, you can't enter my land. And they're like, well, God told us to go through. And he's like, well, you can't. And so they're gone. And this other neighboring kingdom that's next is the kingdom of Moab or the Moabites. And their king's name was Balak. And uh, Balak is seeing what just happened to the Moabite or the the Amorite king. And he's like, well, we don't want that. But I'm also not going to let you through. And he's, he's panicked. So what does he do? He sends some of his royal entourage with a bunch of money and gifts to this land of Persia. And he says, I want you to hire the most famous magician, astrologer, prophet to come back here and to put a curse on these people so they don't crush us. And that prophet was a man by the name of Balaam. And so Balaam sees this entourage coming, he welcomes them, says, What do you want? And they're like, Well, we'll give you all this money to come back with us and stand on this high ground and curse this horde of people called the Jews. And he says, well, hold on, I, I, I need to talk to... So their God is Yahweh. I need to talk to Yahweh tonight about his thoughts. And he talks to Yahweh, and Yahweh says, um, no, you, you can't curse them, because I blessed them. I mean, literally, he's like, you can't curse them, because I blessed them. And what I've blessed, you can't curse. And so Balaam, to his credit, the next morning, he says, yeah, I'm not able to curse them. Sorry, I'm not going with you. So they, the entourage goes back to the king... And they say, oh, this is what he said. They're like, well, everybody has a price, right? Like the things that you wouldn't do for a million dollars, you would do for a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars. So he's like, let's tell you what, send a bunch more money back to Balaam and ask him the same thing. So they do. And by the way, this story is in Numbers 22. And it's fascinating. The second time Balaam says this, Numbers 22, verse 18, he says, though Balak were to give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So he's like, no, that's my final answer. Except it wasn't. Because then like next chapter, you find Balaam actually going back to Moab with the entourage, meeting with the king and basically saying, okay, what do you want me to do? And it it sounds like he apparently intends to curse Israel in spite of Yahweh warning him not to because he's like, well, that's a lot of money to just, you know, pronounce a curse. And so Balak takes Balaam up on these high places and is like, okay, see the people? I want you to curse them. And he, he opens his mouth to prophesy over them, to curse them. And what flows from his mouth is blessing. And Balak is like, you need a better vantage point. Let's, let's come over here. Okay, let's try this again. And the second time, what, he opens his mouth and what comes out is a blessing. Let's try this again. Let's go, let's go up here. Third time, blessing fourth time, blessing. And what happens that fourth time is in the middle of this prophecy, which is called in scripture, a word of the Lord. Balaam, this Gentile prophet from Persia in the time of the Exodus says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And essentially you can go back in ancient history From that point on, as Balaam returns to basically the land of Persia, all the astronomers and astrologers are looking for that star that they know when this star, when this special star arises over Jacob, this land over here, we know a very, very special, and it says ruler, scepter, is born. And so that's layer one, kind of how the Magi knew something was up. Because day after day, night after night, they're watching the skies. They're studying what's the anomaly? What's the one-off? And bam, that night, that star appears. And they're like, what if that's it? And if that's it, we owe it to ourselves to go explore and to find who this one born king of the Jews is. And that leads us to the fourth question. I said, why were they interested in the king of the Jews? She'd be like, "Uh, you know, you're, you're Zoroastrians. You have your own kings and princes and culture and you're a thousand miles away. Like nobody cares about the king of the Jews except as a rival kingdom. Like kill him and you maybe get more territory. So why did they care? And this is layer two then that brings the Magi to Bethlehem shortly after the time of Jesus' birth. And it's, it's that not only, did they, not only did they know this is a supernatural star, but they knew it was associated with A king who is potentially more than a mere mortal. Put it that way. Okay, where do they get that from? Where do they get the idea this king is more than just a person? Well, I want you to remember that a lot of the Old Testament is a, you know, it's a history of Israel and of Judah. Later as the ten tribes of the north split off from the two tribes of the south. And as you read the Old Testament, it parallels with what we know from ancient secular history that as God's people, the covenant people, continued to rebel. There was this series of attacks from outside kingdoms. So, you know, I think in order you have like Assyrians and then Babylonians and then Persians. Like all come and attack the Holy Land. And take thousands, if not tens of thousands or more of their best workers back to this same land of Persia. You know, it's a series of kingdoms, but it's the same territory that these Magi were from. So most of the Old Testament, like if you just like talk about the quantity of Old Testament, is written during this time period of all these raids and all these deportations and all these thousands and thousands of Hebrews living in a foreign land where these Magi lived. And so as they're settling in, a lot of their cultural practices, a lot of their religious practices, you know, they're trying to stay Orthodox. They don't have access to the temple way back over here in Jerusalem, but but they're trying to set up like little tabernacles and some of these family religious practices and rituals to keep themselves clean and to keep themselves unique and separate from the kind of the host culture where they were in captivity. What's also interesting during this time is that as thousands of Jews are living in this foreign land for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there were a few of Israel's prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel in particular, who actually their ministry was in captivity. So as Yahweh is sending new word, new prophecy, the first group of people that are hearing this prophecy are the Jews in captivity, and then their captors are hearing all this. And if one of the famous magician magi of the ancient world was Balaam, who I just told you about, a second one was the man Daniel. Because the like the Zoroastrian priests continued to study the figure of Daniel because they're like, whatever we believe about Israel's God, Daniel clearly had supernatural power. Like he could interpret dreams of kings and those dreams came true or his interpretations came true every time. He had some kind of supernatural power where he gets thrown in a den of hungry lions and they, they don't touch him. And the king of the captors is basically like, Daniel, did your God save you overnight? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine. And Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what kind of supernatural power do they have? They get thrown in a fiery furnace. And not only are they not singed as their captors were who threw them in, there's a fourth person that appears with them in the fire who looks like a son of God. Okay, so these stories are being passed down. Like who, whoever these guys were, they had the real God on their side, whoever the real God is. And I want you to think of these, these Magi, these Zoroastrian priests, as they were syncretists, if you know that word. They were pluralists. So while they wouldn't say, like, we're all in on, you know, Jesus now, but we're not, they're not all in on Yahweh, but they're like, to the degree that Yahweh speaks truth and to the degree that he may be a real God, we want to learn about him also. And so for generations magi are studying and studying and studying and saying like what what did Daniel write what did Ezekiel write what did some of the traditions of the Hebrews people say would come about so they're they're actually like have a pretty comprehensive but limited knowledge or I should say an accurate but limited knowledge of some of the Old Testament prophecies Now coming back to Daniel specifically Because there isn't a doubt in my mind that the Magi not only knew who he was, but actually revered him as one of their own. I want to draw your attention to Daniel 7, in verses 13 and 14, where Daniel writes this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed say that this ancient of days was a way of them saying the eternal one like ancient days, like they, they, his days just go back and back and back and back and back and back, and no one can find a beginning. He's the uncreated creator, is what they're saying. And this, this one who's like a son of man is just like, he, you know, he looks like a human being. And if you're thinking, well, how could God give his infinite, eternal, unchangeable glory and majesty and kingdom and power to just a human being... Well, the answer is he can't. Like a human being couldn't, like this vessel can't contain that, okay? So that's why Daniel said, there came one like a son of man. In other words, in appearance as a man or man plus something else. It's a mystery at this point. And I want you to note in Daniel's prophecy, and I just read this, who worships and serves the son of man? It's not just the Jews. It's not just the Israelites. He says it's all peoples, nations, and languages. That included people like the Magi. And so as the Magi are familiar with some of the writings of Daniel, and this is, these are probably some of the most famous words that Daniel ever spoke, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Let me kind of put this together into a plausible, probable narrative. Okay, The Magi from over a 1,000 miles away came to find and to worship the newborn king of the Jews. Number one, because they knew and they believed enough scripture to have reason to think this was a divine child. Okay, they know just bits and pieces, but they're like, I think when we see this star, there is a special king, a special child. And we believe that we are called to worship him if Daniel has it right. And Daniel did things that nobody ever did. So we think Daniel has it right. Now, because they're constantly watching the sky for the signs that this has actually come to pass. And they were probably doing this for generations. And these guys just got lucky because it happened when they were alive. But as soon as the sign appears, they put it together and they recognize this is the star of Jacob. This is the sign that this special king is here. Okay, now let's, let's come back to our text in Matthew 1. I want to start drawing some conclusions from the questions and the answers, the history kind of that we've we reviewed so far. And remember, we're in the season of Advent, so we've gone through these four. Today's the fourth. Um, we talked about Mary and learning to wait in surrender like, let it be to me according to your word. God, I don't understand. I'm scared. I've got questions. But as I wait on your return, I surrender. And we talked about Joseph waiting in integrity. Like, Lord, as I wait for your return, let me walk with an integrity of a heart of, of heart, like wholeness, where there's not two different or divided people. I'm an integrated person where the whole life is saying the same thing about God and his worthiness. Last week, Richard talked about Simeon, this older gentleman who waited in the spirit and in the word so that he knew and recognized what others didn't recognize because he he knew the Bible and he had the spirit of God filling him to open the eyes of his heart. And then today we're talking about the Magi, and I'll use this key word, waiting in watchfulness, because this is what I think they're doing. I think they're a thousand miles away, of course, not knowing when or where, This star will appear, but they're watching day after day, night after night, watching. And I want to close with three applications that I think you'll find applicable to you. Number one, watchful waiting means knowing the biblical narrative and what time it is. So knowing the biblical narrative and what time it is. And I think it's obvious the Magi knew and believed Numbers 2417 about this star of Jacob. And that it represents the birth or the arrival of a very special king. Okay. Um, I think they they knew other prophecies. And I can't say with any certainty what prophecies they knew. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. But you, you look at the story. And again, kind of what I did is say, here's a plausible or probable narrative. How did they get there? Why did they believe in Jesus, not having met him? They had other scriptures. And what they did have, they believed. And my question for us is, how does the word of God, because we, as Richard said last week, we have so much more of it. And we have it, I mean, it's, it's, it's compiled for us in a book. We're not searching for like little scraps of leather or papyrus to piece together just a few verses or words even. We have the whole thing. And how does the whole thing, the whole holy scriptures inform the way you wait for the second advent of Jesus? Because what I see these Magi doing is taking a little bit of the word, and I do think they were probably picking and choosing from other religions and other writings. And that's not good, by the way. I'm not saying that's good. Syncretism is bad. But, but they were doing the best they knew under the circumstances. And when they're like, wait, this is true. This is coming to pass. This is him. This is the king. This is God. He is worthy of our worship. And if we have so much more scripture and so much more access to scripture, how much more should our lives be informed by what God says he's like, what he says we're like, what he says the world will be like toward us as followers of Jesus, what he says his second coming will be like. And I encourage you to study the Bible with an eye toward how it is intended to shape your waiting. Like if, if, I'm, if I'm waiting on someone who has already come first advent and will come again guaranteed or I will die to go to meet him by faith, how then should I live? Like what, what would I prioritize? What, what would I value and devalue? What kind of culture do we want to create together as we wait on Jesus to return? The scripture talks to all these things. Um, I said also, like, it's, it's not only knowing the biblical narrative, but what time it is. So what I mean is when that star arose, the Magi didn't sit around just talking about it and like, that's cool. What do, you, what do you think that is? Well, I don't know. They're like, we know what time it is. That's the star of Jacob. Or there's a high likelihood that it is, and we owe it to ourselves to find out. So they just get up and they go. And they take this very long, very dangerous journey because they're like, we got to poke at that to see if that's a thing. And I'm encouraging us not only to know scripture, but kind of know our place in this story, if I could put it that way, what time it is. Um, In our early years of, of dating and then marriage, Marty worked for a company in Los Angeles. And she was kind of over the whole Western United States doing some real estate work for them. And so sometimes every week, sometimes every other week, she flew to these different cities to to meet with people and put these deals together, see them through. And, um, you know, when we were dating and early in marriage, I was like, oh, you know, we don't, we don't have, like, kids. time me the house. And I was, I missed her when she was gone. So I'm like, I'm going to go pick her up almost every single time that I possibly can. Um, but I want you to know, I didn't, just, I didn't just go to the airport on, like, Tuesday at 3 and just be, like, walking around being like, well, we're... I guess, I guess she's not coming home. I guess this is it, you know? And it's like, there, there's information that I could get, right? Like, what airline are you flying? What, what flight are you on? You can even go to the apps now and say, like, is that flight delayed or is it on time? You can set it up notifications. And so I kind of got it where I could know all this information about her return and then time it, like, just perfectly so I had the least amount of parking to pay for. Because I'm cheap. I got to see her. I'm just in a sense, like, we don't just sit around. If we know what time it is, we're not just like, okay, I'm just like, he could come any second. So I guess I'll just, you know, kind of do nothing and just be here at the airport for his arrival. It's like, well, read what God wants you doing with this time. And use it wisely. And, you know, let him come when and how he wants to come. But we can learn a lot about watchful waiting knowing what time it is. As I say what time it is, I'm, I'm particularly struck by some of the words of Peter, the apostle. When he writes in 1 Peter, he writes this whole letter, and he says, I'm writing to you as exiles. You are sojourners and exiles. You live in the last days, he says. "Okay, So you know, whenever people are like, do you live in the last days? And the answer is yes. Now, we may not be in the last of the last days, not to split hairs, like, but we live in the last days. And, and God says, Scripture says, as you live in the last days, you got to know what time it is you got to know your place in the story okay you are exiles so you're you're living in kind of like enemy territory as so many of the jews did and he's like you've got to be a culture of people set apart the church is a counterculture we're not trying to look like the world we're not trying to get the world's approval love them yes be kind to them, compassionate to them, seek justice for them, absolutely, because that's part of the countercultural kingdom of Jesus. But I'm just encouraging us, if we know our place in the story and what time it is, we don't go in thinking like, how do I, how do I fit in with the world that's always shifting values and morals and ethics and beliefs and thoughts about everything and just say, like, how can I be faithful to Scripture, know what time it is, and live as an exile with a family of people we're doing this together who are living as exiles. So, watchful waiting means knowing the biblical narrative and what time it is. Number two, watchful waiting means seeing through eyes of faith what others can't see. Um, and Richard kind of touched on this last week as well, where, uh, and, and I texted him, I was like, I-, I gotta be honest, if I were in the temple that day that Mary and Joseph, a young Jewish couple, comes through with a little baby to dedicate them, I cannot say that I would be like, that's him, that's the Messiah. But Simeon did, because he's searching the scriptures and he's filled with the spirit and he's seeing something really through eyes of faith that everyone else is missing. Do you know the same things here in the story? And I think it's one of the really fascinating things about the text. Um, Jesus, so the Magi first come to Jerusalem. They're like, of course, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are five miles apart. So you can see when you're going for a thousand miles, you're like, oh, I can see what this is about. Jerusalem, capital city of the Jews. Obviously, right? So they go to Jerusalem, and they're really close. And they go into King Herod, this like puppet king of the Roman Empire, and they're like, hey, where, where's the king of the Jews born? And he's like, wait, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, the star. They didn't see it. Like all, the, all these political rivals to Jesus didn't see it. What's scarier for us as religious good people is, do you notice in the text, who else doesn't have a clue what's going on? Says is the priests and the scribes. The priests who were responsible for offering up sacrifices to God on behalf of the people and scribes who are writing stuff down and teaching them what the word of God says. And they're there and these magi from a thousand miles away, these Zoroastrians come and they're like, hey, where's the one born king of the Jews? And they're like, huh, what? Oh, um, there's this Micah said... Bethlehem, See, so I mean, that's five miles away. You might check that out. And not a single one of them goes with the Magi to, like, kick the tires. It's crazy. But they're not looking through eyes of faith. They're, they're maybe looking through very religious eyes of, like, this, this is what good, pious Jewish men do. And we don't, we don't travel with Zoroastrians. You imagine how that could look. They're five miles away from their long-awaited Messiah and the Savior of the world, and no one knew it. They couldn't perceive the truth when it was right under their noses. I don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person who's just like... And these other people that maybe get it, I mean, not that they're mocking you, but they'd be like, hello? Like, are you serious right now? Would you have seen the signs? Would you have put it together? And even if you didn't, would you have dropped everything and been like, I owe it to myself to see if God's up to something over here. And I want to encourage you with this this little scripture. The Bible says in talking to God, in your light, we see light. Which sounds like a tautology. It's like, what does that mean? Um, In your light, we see light means like the more we expose ourselves to like the character and the power and the presence of God, like living in his light, we see light. And the, and the point is like, the more we're like, God, I just want to know you and know your presence and know what you're really like and live in light of what you're really like. And it's like, now all of a sudden there's more light. Now, now because I know God, I know his world. I know his purpose. I know his will. I know his plan. I know his priorities, and this is, I think, how we get the eyes of our hearts opened is that we just, we just fall in love all over again with, with Jesus and with God and walk with him and be present with him and find he's throwing light everywhere where we see things that, and again, not in a proud way. It's not like, oh, I see things you don't see, but, but you would because he's being gracious to say, let me show you. I love you. Let me walk with you. So watchful waiting means... Seeing through eyes of faith what others can't see. Finally, number three, watchful waiting means knowing and giving God what he is worthy of. Say it a little differently. Watchful waiting means knowing and giving what God is worthy of. Okay? Um, And you notice when these wise men get to Jesus, again, overlapping with what Richard said last week, what do they see when they get to Jesus? It's like there's an infant Jewish baby being held by his 15, 16, 17-year-old young Jewish mom. It, there, there's nothing there that's like, ta-da, this is a king, and he's actually the king of the world. He's the savior. He's God. But the first the gift that they give the baby is the gift of their worship. It says they fall down, prostrate, and praise him. They believe Jesus is worthy of worship. They, they call on him as their God, not just a God, but they're like, you're him. Verse 11 then goes on then opening their treasures, they offered gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I probably don't need to tell you, those are not the most practical gifts for an infant. I don't think Mary was like, well, praise the Lord. Now we have gold and two aromatic resins. You know, she's she's probably like, I need, I need bottles and I need diapers. I need wet wipes. Um, Or if you want to go fun direction, I could use like some cute onesies or like a a tactile 3D sensory learning cube or like crinkle caterpillar or or, like something, Um, gold, frankincense and myrrh. And I think like they are symbolic gifts, but I think what it shows us is that. As the Magi, a thousand miles away, are watchfully waiting. If he comes in our time, we'll know what he's worthy of. Gold is a gift that's associated with kings, royalty. And uh, they could not outgive God if they really believe this is the child of God, the son of God. But they're like, you have inestimable worth. And we're going to reflect that with this is the most valuable thing that we own in the ancient world. is like gold, refined gold. It's yours. Frankincense was, as I said, an aromatic resin that was burned and the Zoroastrian priest would have done this as well, but it was a, like as it was burned, this resin burned, it was, it, it was a, like a nice smell. And the smoke would rise upward and they'd watch it and they'd be like, okay, in a sense, like our prayers are ascending to God because he's accepted them through this coming savior. It's associated with the priesthood, with worship, with prayers being acceptable to God. And then myrrh, is um, and sometimes myrrh was burned as well, but very often it was like the uh, the resin for anointing a dead body. And it's possible they even realized, if they knew enough of these bits and pieces of the most famous prophecies that were issued when ancient Israel Israelite prophets lived in the ancient world that they lived in, they may have actually known there's a coming king who's going to die to give his people life. Whatever the case. The Magi are ready for these, these, they're ready with these gifts because they know something of what God is worthy of. Um, By the way, it's interesting, all three of those, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were connected to the ancient worship of the tabernacle. So if they believed in any sense, God is coming in this baby to tabernacle with us. Now, this baby is the true temple. How did the ancient Jews worship gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Let's... Let's do the same thing. There might be a connection there. I'll close with this. I'm just asking, what do you know of God? And what does that imply about what he's worthy of? And just a big one is like, well, if he's the uncreated creator and he's sovereign of my life and he's also my savior, then he's he's worthy of everything. Like I don't want to just, you know, drop a few bucks in the plate and be like, there, are you happy? It's like, no, all of my resources that I have, time, time, money, abilities, education, relationships. Like all of these are things that I can invest in giving back to God because I'm a steward of everything that he's given me. You're a steward of what he's given you. And you can say, Lord, based on what I know of you, you can, in a sense, have it all. You are worthy of it all. And I trust you with it. I trust you with my life. So watchful waiting and just like a practical step is like, does, you, does the way you wait for Jesus to come whenever he does, does it bring you closer to the Messiah? Because that's the way I see these, these magi is like the way they were waiting, what they were processing, what they were ready to give. And then the fact that they got up and went across the Fertile Crescent and down and had conversations and actually got all the way there. Everything about their watchfulness brought them closer and closer and closer and closer to the Messiah, to Jesus. And I pray that, that you're waiting even this week before our Christmas Eve service, that the way you wait is watchful, is hopeful, and brings you closer to the Messiah even this week. Let's pray.